X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon, and it is Friday, December the 4th. Today, back in the day, December 4th, 1875, William M. Tweed escaped from prison and fled to Spain. You might have known him as Boss Tweed, a New York politician who acted as the boss of Tammany Hall. Tammany Hall was a New York political organization that controlled the state-leading Democratic Party. As a boss, Tweed effectively held control over city finances, courts, and various other municipal structures. He used those to make big profits for himself and his friends. For example, the New York County Courthouse cost more than twice the Alaska Purchase, hugely profitable for Tweed. Tweed's influence started to slip as riots in the city grew out of control. And around that same time, Tweed was the subject of Thomas Nast's famous political cartoons published in Harper's Weekly, the progressive era going after the political machines. After the scandal, New York City finances went under much-needed reform, an auditing process in which Tweed was found to be taking straight from city funds. He was quickly arrested. Tweed was arrested and then released on a million dollars bail. That was a whole lot of money back then. After his release, he was re-elected to the state senate in November of 1871. But in general, Tammany didn't do well. Tweed ring started to run away, many going overseas. Tweed got rearrested, had to resign his city positions, was replaced as a leader at Tammany Hall. His retrial in 1873 got him convicted on 204 of 220 counts, got a prison sentence of 12 years. A higher court reduced that sentence down to one year. After his release, he faced another suit for embezzling $6 million, was locked away again, this time allowed on home visits, and on one of those home visits, he fled to Spain. He worked as a common seaman on a Spanish ship. The U.S. government discovered his whereabouts when he was recognized from Nast's political cartoons. He was turned over to an American ship, returned to the United States, and lived the rest of his days in jail. Today, back in the day, December 4, 1959, John Lister passed away. John Lister was the owner of the Oregon House of Mystery. The Oregon House of Mystery, as well as the Oregon Vortex, is located on Sardine Hill and Gold Hill. It's the earliest documented mystery spot in the United States. What makes it so mysterious? Strange phenomena and disturbances in natural laws. Visitors can witness balls rolling uphill. Strange magnetic behaviors. Many more oddities. The property sits on an abandoned Old Gray Eagle Mining Company outpost. It was rediscovered by William McCullough in 1914. He encouraged Lister to come to America to research the Vortex. Lister opened the House of Tourists in 1930 as one of Oregon's first and best examples of roadside Americana. I'm one of many people who've enjoyed the spot. Lister died on this day in 1959. But the Mystery House remains open and mysterious. We'll have your quick six news headlines and an interview with recent candidate for Metro Karen Spencer on how game theory helps to explain exclusion of first-time candidates. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's quick six local rundown. Yesterday was the first day of the new and innovative coronavirus restrictions in Oregon. The innovative part, new system is based on four tiered rankings for each county. Extreme risk, high risk, moderate risk, lower risk. 25 of Oregon's 36 counties are in the high risk, which means they don't get a lot of change in restrictions from the recent two-week freeze. In the extreme risk counties, like Multnomah, Clackamas, and Washington, indoor dining, not allowed. I mean, at your house, but not like at a restaurant. Social gatherings are limited to six people, two households, stores are limited to 50% capacity, churches are limited to 25% capacity, personal services like salons can remain open with safety protocols, gyms, movie theaters, bowling alleys, and other recreational facilities will remain closed. Currently, there are four lower-risk counties, Gilliam, Sherman, Wallawa, and Wheeler. In those counties, social gatherings are limited to 10 people and indoor dining allowed at 50% capacity. 
To be clear, in Gilliam, Sherman, Wallawa, and Wheeler, not a ton of places where whole lots of big groups gather. Governor Brown has emphasized there will be no zero-risk counties until a vaccine has been adequately administered. It's time for your daily dose of data. On Wednesday, the Oregon Health Authority confirmed 1,244 new cases of coronavirus and 18 coronavirus-related deaths. The state totals are now at 78,160 cases and 953 deaths. Additionally, 620 patients are hospitalized with confirmed or suspected coronavirus. The Oregon Health Authority expects to receive 106,000 COVID vaccine doses this month. 35,100 will be from Pfizer and 71,000 from Moderna. These first doses will be reserved for healthcare workers. One third of the state's healthcare workers will receive the two doses necessary for the vaccine to be effective. The remainder of healthcare workers will be vaccinated in January. Both vaccines have shown an effectiveness rate of 95%. Health officials claim vaccines will be available to the public in a handful of months. The Joint Office of Homeless Services has booked 409 motels in the Portland area to house the homeless during the pandemic. Due to the high susceptibility to the virus among homeless people, the county's acquired long-term leases at eight facilities. Most of them will last until the end of June. Two of the hotels are accommodating people who have the virus, costing the county and taxpayers $800,000 a month in special services. Five of them are for people who would normally stay at shelters but have higher vulnerability to the virus due to underlying conditions. Jupiter Hotel is among the facilities being used. They're leasing 81 rooms at $69 a night. Portland hotel occupancy rates are currently 30%. That's out of 100, by the way. A proposal aimed at assisting Oregon renters and landlords is leaving both sides unenthused. Oregon lawmakers have proposed legislation that would provide $100 million in grants to landlords who have not received rent payments. If acquired, a landlord would receive 80% of the so far unobtained amounts, forgive the remaining 20%, and they would be unable to evict tenants until June 2021. Housing advocates say much more money is needed to make this a credible solution. Katrina Holland from the advocacy group JOIN said, quote, This legislative concept isn't bold. I believe we do have a long way to go to rise to the unprecedented occasion that contextualizes us in unprecedented circumstance. The reality is we need hundreds of millions. According to the U.S. Census Bureau Housing Pulse Survey, 12% of Oregonians have rent debt at an average of $2,700 a person. The Oregon Housing Rental Association, or OHRA, added that landlords are also suffering. Jason Miller from the OHRA believes the bill should include tax breaks for the remaining 20% that landlords are being asked to forgive. Black Metal Health Oregon is providing technology kits to keep vulnerable and BIPOC community members connected. BMHO is offering technology like laptops, iPads, Wi-Fi, and tech support to those eligible. They'll be prioritizing elders in the community as well as those who've been diagnosed with mental illness in order to increase their access to resources. The program received $3.5 million in funding from the CARES Act, and BMHO is one of two dozen organizations closing the technology gap during the pandemic. Digital equity has become a bigger theme during the pandemic because technology is the chance to remain connected when you can't be in person. An estimated 32,000 households in Multnomah County lacked internet access. Over 16,000 did not have computers. This technology kit program is prepared to serve about 3,500. Good news. Commissioner Amanda Fritz has announced she is removing General George Custer's name from Custer Park 
in Southwest Portland. During her last month in office, Commissioner Fritz has declared the 6.3-acre city park will no longer carry the name of the Civil War officer. General Custer gained infamy after the Civil War for his exploitation of Native Americans in the West. Specifically, he led wars against indigenous people for control of the Great Plains region. Commissioner Fritz has not given the park a new name, but until Portlanders choose one, it shall be known as A Park. Fritz said in a statement, quote, while the park itself is a treasured community asset and gathering space, its name does not represent the park nor capture the relationship Portlanders want to have with this wonderful place. Worse, it glorifies a military oppressor instead of honoring the courageous Lakota, Northern Cheyenne, and Arapaho warriors who defended their homelands in what is now Montana. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, we have an interview with recent Metro Council candidate Karen Spencer. She'll be in conversation with Jefferson Smith, talking about the bias of election campaigns and how that impacts first-time candidates. Here are Karen and Jefferson. Five candidates ran for Metro Council this year, a primary the Oregonian called the most competitive in a decade. That same paper opted to interview only some of those five candidates, a decision that our next guest says maintains a white, straight, male status quo. That guest is former Metro Council candidate Karen Spencer, who's here to discuss her recent article, It's All in the Game, The Impact of Status Quo Bias. Karen, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Let's talk about that Metro. wonderful that you want to talk about game theory in the morning time. By the way... I, I studied it back in the back in the day when we were studying law and economics and and uh, and enjoyed the subject very much. Think there are some limits to it, but I do want to get to the nerdy stuff. Let's start by talking about the Metro Council primary. Was that your first time running for office? Maybe not even student council or some such. It was my first time running for anything at all. It was uh, uh, you know I wanted to get involved in politics, particularly after Charlottesville. I thought that I would be out knocking on doors, canvassing, and supporting other candidates. And I went through the Emerge Oregon program and really felt like I was prepared to run if the right opportunity came open, which I thought would be many years from now. And it just turned out that uh, during the winter, the opportunity came for a role that I thought that I was uh, fit for and that I could do a really good job at and really help our community. And at the risk of asking a trite question, how was that experience for you? You know, I, it sounds weird despite all of the challenges. I really loved it. I loved connecting with people. I love talking about the issues. I learned so much about our community, uh, the metro region. I thought I knew a lot living here, uh, uh, you know, 20 years, but I learned even more. So I love that experience of it. I, I would say I did not like losing, but uh, I love the experience of meeting people, even through, through going through the whole COVID uh, phase as well. Other than losing, what was the hardest part? Uh, the, probably the anxiety of it. You never know. And I talk about it in my uh, article. You don't know where you stand at any given moment. You think you're doing well, but you're never really sure. So I think that would be the second hardest part. And I think as a first time candidate, 
you uh, you know, you always want to do a good job, but uh, you have even that uh, more struggle of knowing how to balance everything. I want to get into the game theory stuff a little bit. The Oregonian decided who they were going to interview. Now, presumably they did that per Zoom. Walk us through what happened. So uh, for candidates, you get questionnaires from groups that are looking to uh, figure out who they want to endorse. So uh, during the, I would say, probably the March time frame, I was filling out questionnaires for various organizations. The Oregonian uh, sent uh, me and the, our, the other candidates a questionnaire, which I completed. They stated that they wanted to have uh, two candidates interviewed. Uh, uh, based on the answers to the questionnaires. The, the difficulty with our race was that it was as competitive as it was. And others recognized the competitiveness of the race, the quality of the candidates, uh, and the Oregonian did not. And in, in this situation, it, it really biased the, the results towards more known folks than not known. And my article goes through why, why it was that uh, other candidates, even the ones who were not selected to be interviewed, did not stand up and speak out. And I do want to get to that piece of it, but let's talk even about the substance of the race. What was at stake? in that Metro Council race? We had uh, five, you know, five really qualified candidates. Uh, you know, Mary Nolan, who is now Metro Councilor, was a past uh, legislator, Chris Smith, an activist uh, for uh, transportation and the environment. Uh, you know, we, we just wonderful people, air quality activists, uh, wonderful people in that race. Uh, we uh, raised a lot of money uh, through contributors. Every single individual within the campaign, uh, it was uh, you know it was really fought on the issues, which I was pleased about as a first-time candidate. We were really talking about the issues: housing, air quality, transportation that matter to uh, folks in the metro region. Were there salient disagreements that people should? keep in mind as evaluating the results or even evaluating Mary Nolan or what's at stake going forward? Yeah, I, I would say it's uh, more about approach. How do you think about the issues? How are you going to manage the complexities? Uh, the Metro uh, has a wide field of responsibility across the region, but it's really about the livability of our region. So I think that the differences. Uh, were in approach and on emphasis. And in I, I, looking at candidates, when you have a tough choice, that's what I would really go for. Does that person have the approach and the background that I think is most suited for the most pressing issues? Let's walk to your decision to run. Now, you knew that you hadn't run before, but you had been through some candidate training. Walk us more through that decision and any back and forth you had in trying to make that decision to put your name on the ballot? Uh, through the Emerge Oregon program, I got comfortable that I could manage the aspects of a race. I'd had experience 
uh, you know, hosting large events, connecting with people, doing those things. And, and once I got comfortable with that, uh, for me, the question was, could I get out in front? I am one of those individuals who's, although I'm talking on air right now, I'm a bit introverted. I'm a bit shy. I like to be behind the scenes. I like, uh, making sure that things run well. Uh, so putting myself forward was really the question that I had to ask myself. Was I ready to step forward? Was I ready, particularly as an African-American woman, to kind of shine the light, uh, which has uh, historically been an issue? Uh, can, could I do that? And I felt like I could and that we needed uh, people like me to step forward, uh, to uh, hold office. I do believe that if we had a more diverse government, that we would have better government. And um, and I guess, you know, living, wanting to live those values really propelled me to, to say, yes, I, I did want to run at some point. Uh, the decision to run in uh, January uh, was one that had to be made very quickly, uh, and I, I, I felt like it was going to be my opportunity that I might miss that opportunity and that I might regret it. And what we really needed to do within the region at that time was something within my bailiwick that I could handle. Uh, so it, it was, it was uh, I didn't have as many sleepless nights as I think other candidates do because I basically had a week to make that decision. Um, many candidates spend years trying to decide. You had previously worked at Nike. You then, and I think now work as a consultant for early entrepreneurs uh, and you already talked about some of the things you're nervous about that you were a little introverted, but some of the things you weren't nervous about, you've been through a training program. Uh, was there any other element that made you particularly uncomfortable uh, or you were particularly concerned about either? And maybe it wasn't even, well, am I up for it, but this darn thing is corrupt. You know, I never go to the wards uh, that bent. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I try to believe that people are trying to do the right thing that sometimes the system is not, I, I guess, geared towards uh, uh, a level playing field. And I certainly have uh, experienced you know, a discrimination. I have experienced hate. Uh, but I try to believe that you know, when all of a sudden people are trying to do the best with what they've got. So I was not as concerned with that. And I had uh, worked on a Metro committee before, so I was familiar with Metro uh, previously. And I had met uh, Metro counselors before and really had a high regard and respect for them. So I think that past experience helped me out a lot. So you get into the race. And, of course, the Oregonian endorsement's a big deal. It is less of a big deal than it might have been one day, and in part because Oregonian circulation, newspapers are down. Uh, also because there's a lot of people who look at the Oregonian as not, uh, not reflective of their own pro-democracy values in our town sometimes. But nonetheless, it's a big deal. And a race like Metro that doesn't have the kind of race of a congressional race or the kind of budget, excuse me, of a mayoral race doesn't get that kind of coverage that the Oregonian endorsement can matter. And when there are five qualified, to use your terms, when there are five highly qualified candidates, the decision to interview just two of them is a big, big decision. Then what I heard you say is that after that, when they picked the two they were going to interview, uh, and maybe I don't think I'm skipping ahead in the story. I'm not wanting to tell it myself. I'm wanting you to tell it. 
but then there wasn't criticism by the people who weren't interviewed. Walk us through that. Yeah, yeah, so you, you've told it exactly as it happened. Uh, the Oregonians selected uh, candidates that they wanted to interview. I believe they may have picked uh, three of us instead of the two originally planned. I'm uncertain about that. And what I called for, given that City Club had gone through the exact same decision-making process, City Club originally was only going to interview uh uh, two of us and quickly came back and said, whoa, wait a minute, this race is very different than the other races. We are going to have all five of you uh, present to our city club uh, for debate. And when that happened, and that was followed quickly on the heels of the Oregonian decision, I called on my fellow candidates, both ones who I thought would have been interviewed, ones who were not interviewed, called on everyone on social media and through private messaging to, to speak up. Uh, and, and really, uh, uh, the thing that I was thinking about was how many times we had been in endorsement interviews and everyone said that they would stand up for people of color. They would stand up for folks who were being marginalized. And I felt that this was an emblematic situation of that occurring in real time. And so I called upon my fellow candidates to speak up about it, and none did at the time. I did get a few private messages, but that doesn't really move the you know, the ball forward, so to speak, uh, but nothing uh, publicly was stated in criticism of the Oregonians. And so you were sort of isolated. You wanted, you think if you had had the collective action, if everybody had signed on, that maybe the Oregonian would have done something. Uh, but if it's just you, oh, well, there's one candidate didn't get interviewed. Of course, they're, they're grumpy about that. And then your article, again, it's entitled It's All in the Game. Explain in game theoretic terms why and i should say we should give a little bit of background of game theory why don't you why don't you start with start with that people there's now a movie about it so it's not it's it's relatively well known but yeah walk us through that a little bit uh, so, yes, uh, well, game theory was uh, popularized and came into the lexicon with a uh, Russell Crowe movie, The Beautiful Mind. But it's essentially a mathematical way of assessing strategies and looking at strategies and uh, uh, how players in a game or in a strategic context uh, are, are incentivized or non-incentivized towards certain decisions and what those outcomes are going to be and then how can you uh, change the game uh, to, uh, for different outcomes. So that's the basis of game theory itself. I do not claim to be an expert on it like you. I studied it long ago. I, uh, you know, after the race uh, was over, I spent a lot of time thinking about the situation with the Oregonian, and it really puzzled me because uh, my fellow candidates I know are you know, well-intentioned, and they all said that they would speak up. And I've seen this happen in the corporate context so many times that I was like, well, why is this happening? And I rested on game theory uh, because I felt like that analysis would um, – highlight what the issues were and and give me a, a structure for thinking about it. And what I discovered was that the 
you know, the benefits go to in, and when you have a biased system is the benefits go to the winner, so to speak, and that the losers of the game uh, have very little incentive to speak out about that bias because they have their own incentives in place. And I walk through a hypothetical situation uh, using five candidates uh, in this context. And I, I was really surprised by the, the results. You can, a lot of it's driven by incentives. And so which game did you use? The most, uh, the prisoner dilemma is the most famous uh, John Nash game theory game. Uh, there are others, of course, uh, if you've seen the, uh, if you've seen the dark Knight, that was maybe the most notable uh, cinematic example of the, of the prisoner's dilemma, uh, as well as the uh, Cornelian uh, dilemma. Which game do you, it, maybe it's not a specific one, but was there a game particularly, a, a, a sort of a John Nash example that you thought best illustrated the challenge that you and the federal, uh, uh, you and the other, your fellow candidates faced? Oh, that's, uh, you know, I think in some ways it is, um, analogous more to like the tragedy of the commons yeah. than even the prisoner's dilemma uh in in some in some ways because uh, you you and for your listeners the tragedy of the commons is basically explains why you sometimes get a lot of dog poop or litter in a public space because when something is no one's responsibility or everyone's responsibility, it can quickly turn into no one's responsibility. Um, uh, so I, I, I think it's very similar, but uh, very similar to that context. How are you thinking about this now? I mean, I think back to Amanda Fritz. What she did was lose once, right? She ran and lost. She ran for city council, got public funding, lost. Uh, but then everybody knew her name. And when she ran the next time, she won. Now there are people who are like, oh, there's Karen Spencer. I remember there's some people who voted for her. I felt a little guilty that I just voted for two white candidates. When I tell all my friends how much I want to see broader diversity within the elected ranks in Oregon, I'm rooting for her now. Have you thinking about running for something else? If the right opportunity comes open, right now I'm uh, like most people. I'm focused on uh, surviving through the pandemic, ensuring that uh, I have a startup in addition to my consulting business, and ensuring that my startup gets off the ground. But if I see something else where I feel like I can make a real contribution to our community, and my skills are suited towards that, and I'm enthused by it, I certainly would not hesitate to put my hat in the ring again. We're talking to Karen Spencer. The article is It's All in the Game. This is X-Ray FM, KXY Portland, KQAC HD3 Portland, 107.1, 91.1 FM, streaming online everywhere at xray.fm. Karen, are you healthy? Is your family healthy? Everything going okay? I heard you saying, yeah, what I'm doing now, dummy, is I'm not running for office. I'm trying to make sure I could live. That's fair. Is your family okay? Yes, my family is. We're, we are healthy and uh, healthy and as happy as you can be uh, during this time. So thank you for asking. Thank you. Any, any other final word, anything else you learned, anything you want to say or plug before we go? You know, I would say that if you are interested in politics and running for office and supporting candidates, please do so. Even uh, on the not big election years, uh, there are many fine uh, women and women of color uh, who are beating the pavement, working hard to make our community better, and they could really use your support. So please support them. And I'll offer a thought because it's one of the it's overlapping 
one of the best thoughts, two of the best thoughts I ever heard. One was from Ron Wyden, who who said, well, if you want to run for office, do something entrepreneurial. He didn't mean something in business. He meant something where you show leadership. And also from the uh, from Karen Power, uh, former head of the uh, former ambassador of the UN, yeah, where she said, uh, oh, if you want to be a policy expert, know something about something. So if you care about you want to have an impact, go try to make an impact even outside of elected office, and then you'll build your network and you have a chance to make more of an impact. Also, if we elect candidates who are trying to solve problems rather than just being in office, that's probably good also. Karen Spencer, thank you so much for taking your time. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks to Karen for joining the local. Big thanks to the production team. Legendary executive editor Will Romey. I cannot tell you how grateful I am and we are to Will Romey for his humanity and the work he does on this show. Also, to Miranda Selinger, Jonathan Covington Brand, who's doing so much work in the morning show, Sophie Mallon, terrifically talented with music and so many of the creative arts, Brian Miller, a wonderful young participant in the X ray community, Julia Oppenheimer, keep this going. Julia Oppenheimer, who we met during the podcast training program. Jonathan Covington Brand, who's basically running the morning show these days. Miranda Selinger, who's basically running everything these days. Julissa Ringering, who's in the studio Thursday morning. Carly Quadros, one of the intrepid members of the intern crew, and Sam Smargiasi. Don't say Smargiasi, it's Smargiasi, Smith. I'm Smith, by the way. Big thanks to co-executive producer Emily Gilliland. I'm Jeff Smith. Thanks to original journalism by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Business Journal, KGW, The Lamont Week, Coin, Pamplin Media, OPB, KTU, The Oregonian, Statesman Journal, News Partners, Port Mercury, Street Roots, Eater, and Portland Tribune. Thanks for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, democracy. Talk to you on Monday. X-ray, 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 X